0: In a suburb of Chicago, there's a Dial Soap factory. Dial Soap. It's still one of the biggest soap brands in the country. And back in the 60s, this company was called Armor Dial, because back then Dial was a subsidiary of Armor and Company, a meatpacker. These two companies were a big deal in Chicago. But one day, back in 1969, a pipe that carried industrial waste out of the plant got clogged and started to back up. Causing the factory to shut down. When the employees located the problem, they realized the pipe was full of debris that had been mixed with concrete. By one account, it was as much as seven tons of junk clogging up the works. Next to the pipe, there was a sign. It
1: said something clever like ArmorDial pollutes our water.
0: The sign was autographed The Fox. The signature might have been referencing the river that this sludge was polluting, the Fox River, but it came to be known as a pseudonym, a calling card for a mysterious environmental vigilante. He didn't make a plan to be the Fox. He didn't. He didn't come
2: out and say, "Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a crime fighter. I'm going to be an environmental, you know, uh, sage or whatever."
0: Seven years before, the state of Illinois had passed a law that was supposed to limit the chemicals that factories like this could pump into rivers and lakes, but Armour Dial had largely ignored it. And now, somebody was calling them out on it. Under the cover of darkness, somebody had come to teach them a lesson. This protest was not a serious problem for Armour Dial. It didn't bankrupt them. But it was just the beginning of a years-long campaign that this anonymous crusader waged against the company. And in 1975, six years later, the state of Illinois brought them to court and told them to clean up their act. The Fox had beaten an industrial giant. And the man who kicked this all off? Today, we know who he is. When it all started, he was a high school biology teacher.
1: This isn't a, a story of a caped crusader that fights crime and is, you know, is, you know truth, justice, and American way. This is a guy uh, who's upset And saw an injustice and went, wait a minute, that's ridiculous.
0: From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. When is environmental harm so great that taking the law into your own hands is justified? And why, when people do break the law, are we sometimes sympathetic and other times not? Today on Outside In, when does eco-activism or eco-civil disobedience become eco-terrorism? The man behind the mystery was named Jim Phillips. He was the fun uncle. Yes. I was just gonna say we all viewed him as the cool uncle. Jim Phillips passed away in two thousand one. So to get his story, I talked to a bunch of his nieces and nephews. They're all in their fifties. And even for me, it was pretty hard to keep track of who was who. But for the record, they are Nancy Spring Epley, Jim Spring, Sandy Benhart, and Rob Phillips. Tell me what he was like, who he was, uh, you know, and, and what kind of human being he was.
1: Uh he was he was a pistol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was uh
2: he had a family trait. Uh kind of short-tempered but he could cool off quick
1: and and a great storyteller.
3: Very great storyteller.
1: Just uh, like you know mo- most of it was true and some of it wasn't. Some that of was it was. not <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Jim never got married, never had kids, but kids loved him. And it was
3: such a treat to go spend the night out there on weekends and part of that was rambling around at night actually, you know just looking at stars, looking at nature. Um, Wander up to probably a couple miles from the house. I mean, we'd go out for hours at a time
0: after dinner. When Philip started out as a high school biology teacher in the late 60s, it was a time when industrial waste was starting to get totally out of hand. In 1969, when the Fox clogged the armor dial pipe, it was the same year that the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught on fire because it was so full of oil. This was the same time that Maine's Androscoggin River was so polluted that vapors coming off of it supposedly caused the paint to peel off the sides of houses that faced it, inspiring Senator Ed Muskie to champion the Clean Water Act. It was the apex of industrial pollution in America. A few states had started to try to clean things up, but in Jim Phillips' eyes, progress was too slow.
2: Nobody seemed to care. Well, he cared. And... He started then demonstrating just <laughs> just how much he <laughs> cared. That was his it, first drain it, plug. <laughs> it costed people a lot of money
0: when they found out how, just how much he cared. At first, the Fox really didn't have a formula for how to make sure his efforts had maximum impact. The headlines he was garnering were something more like, police unable to catch person who keeps plugging sewer pipes. But eventually, he figured out how to get the media to do some of his work for him starting with one stunt in particular.
1: It went from Armored Dial to U.S.
0: Steel. U.S. Steel is the biggest steel producer in the country and at the time had around 200,000 employees. This was no small fish the Fox was going after.
1: They, they had gotten, I can't remember what the contract were or anything like that, but that was in Chicago, just north of Gary. I can't remember what all they were doing, but the bottom line is he, we'll
0: say, took exception to it. He took exception to it, and he decided to do something about it.
4: These days, of course, this would never work because all the buildings are secure and have video and everything. But he collected together a big jar of the kind of stuff that they were dumping in the river. Well, Just it was, waste. It
0: was, the Fox told newspaper reporters that he added some clams and rotten fish for good measure.
4: He had it in a big jar. And he was a nervous wreck <laughs> yeah. because... None of this was really anything he liked to do. He he preferred to operate legally, but nobody paid any attention. So he was absolutely a nervous wreck. So Ginny and I were his cover, and he went up to their offices, and they had white shag carpet, and he opened up the top of the bottle and dumped it on the carpet and walked out.
0: He also left a tiny coffin on a sofa with three dead creatures inside — a perch, a crayfish, and a frog.
4: And he had a change of clothes with him, so he stopped and took off, you know, what he had been wearing. And underneath it, he had street clothes on, came down to the bottom floor, and Ginny and I were to just casually walk along with him so that he wouldn't draw attention. And uh, that was U.S. Steel. It absolutely was, that was headline news.
0: After the U.S. Steel stunt, the Fox started to do interviews with journalists. He would talk to them over the phone, using a harmonizer. You know what I mean, right? I mean one of these things. He even spoke with television journalists.
2: How did uh, you get started you your kind of
5: unusual fight against pollution.
2: I would assume probably from
0: frustration. This is a news clip from 1971. The reporter conducting the interview is standing in the woods, and the fox is standing close by, but he's framed in such a way that his face is obscured by a tree. You can only see a bit of his back and occasionally a hint of the side of his head.
1: It's a long, tough fight. We're not done yet. We've got much
2: more work to do. So. We most likely will be hearing from the Fox again in the future. or much so.
3: Thank you.
0: The stunts kept coming. He took to hanging big signs in public places, shaming polluters. After U.S. Steel adopted the slogan, We're Involved, he hung a huge banner on a big railroad bridge that read, We're Involved in killing Lake Michigan. He put caps on industrial chimneys, he would hang dead skunks in the offices of CEOs, and then he would call the press. And these reporters kept Jim Phillips secret. His campaign was covered by a nationally syndicated columnist, Mike Royko, who was very sympathetic to the cause. Royko wrote that he would receive angry phone calls from executives at the affected companies who would, quote, sputter and threaten lawsuits and demand to know who this dangerous character was. But Royco never told, nor did anybody for that matter. For the nieces and the nephews, when they were still small, they were kept in the dark. But as they got older, usually around 13, they each found out. Jim Spring learned by accident.
1: I remember I was told it was Dick Young, who was his boss at the EPA in King County. He told me that it was Dick Young. He just lied right to me. And then when I was in junior high, um, the science teacher there was going to do a phone link up with the Fox for some junior high kids.
3: He did interviews with with kids all the time
0: yeah. on the phone. Just think about how bonkers this is. This guy is committing criminal acts, and high school teachers are asking him to speak to their classes.
1: I got to ask the first question. I remember Mr. Woodruff was a science teacher, and he goes, Well, Mr. Fox, we, have a, we start with a kid who isn't even on the list. His name is Jim Spring. And in retrospect, I remember my uncle going, Well, wow. and he started to kind of laugh. And I put on my best, I was very proud of my poker face. I put on my poker face and I remember thinking, it's not Dick Young, that's Uncle Jim. <laughs> He's been lying all these years.
0: Why is it so easy to root for somebody like the Fox? For one, this was a time when people were genuinely freaked out by pollution. Pollution. The year before Phillips pulled this raid, the EPA had been formed. And soon after that, local divisions with inspectors and enforcement staff started to sprout up. It was only a year later that the Clean Water Act was passed. And remember, all this happened under Richard Nixon. It was bipartisan to be an environmentalist. And if you had heard about a guy like the Fox pulling bold stunts against big polluters and getting away with it, he must have just sounded like Robin Hood.
3: There was quite a network of people supporting him up to and including um, the Montgomery police officers. I mean, many Mm -hmm. of them knew what he was doing and would make sure that they had some sort of a signal system that actually, I think, involved leaving pieces of paper in trees and things like that. They did. In a tree stump. And, well, if if he was going to pull a raid and they would indicate where the guards were going to be, at certain times, or not going to be at certain times,
2: right. yeah, and and not all not everybody in the police department was on his side. Some of them actually the,
4: the notably police. the chief
0: after the first few years, he let his stunts get lower profile. In part, this was because things were actually getting cleaned up. the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act. All of these were passed in the 70s. And Phillips preferred to work through these legal methods. He even got a job at the EPA. But also, once he had a name for himself, he knew that he didn't necessarily need the press to get things done. He could clog a pipe, leave his calling card, and just the fear of negative press was enough to get something like a local dry cleaner or oil change shop to fall into line. In one newspaper article, he says he waged 30 campaigns and won 20 of them. For me... The most remarkable part of this story is that Jim Phillips was breaking the law. His friends and his family knew it, big chunks of the community knew it, and even some members of law enforcement knew it, but nobody turned him in. The Fox was not universally adored. You can still find letters to the editor in the newspaper on both sides of the issue, but for three whole decades, his secret never found its way into the hands of the people who would prosecute him. He was even caught by the police twice, read his rights, but never charged. Nobody
3: was ever injured. There right. was never, and and it was clear that the companies that he was going after really deserved it. And they they I think believed in what he was doing as well. They could have blown the whistle on him at any time, and they chose not to. There was to.
2: some times where he had to break windows on companies to to put a sign in or to throw a skunk throw juice a in skunk there. through there, and he would leave he would leave a money order For to the repair to the, the window. window.
1: Yeah.
3: Well, when he dumped the the effluent in the the office at um, U.S. Steel the secretary when she smelled it she got sick. I mean it was nasty and he sent her flowers the next day.
0: Jim Phillips nieces and nephews say the Fox's final caper was in 1988. At this point he'd been out of the headlines for some time, quietly pulling raids whenever he couldn't get the EPA to act quickly enough for his tastes. This last job was a little one an easy one. What's the statute of limitations? We're okay, right? Yes.
1: <laughs> okay. Remember, I'm just thinking about this. I'm yes. confessing
0: a felony. No. The plan was to break a window, squirt a syringe full of a chemical called butyl mercaptan, a chemical used in stink bombs, into the headquarters of some small-time polluter.
1: That was one of the first times I really I really fully appreciated what was taking place. Like I said, when you're younger uh-huh. and doing it, it's one thing. But I was probably I was, I was 28, all right, I was and 20, so all right. you were 24. Yeah, I was married, and
3: we took off from my house. Remember Ron yeah. Sullivan? Yeah,
1: and uh, <laughs> crossed a river and broke a window or two. And
0: Rob tried to break the window of the building, but it was bulletproof glass. Uh, uh, it made...
1: Apparently, a cannon went off in my mind. I mean, it was the loudest was so noise loud. I could. I couldn't believe how loud it was. Um,
3: I was the lookout when these guys were making all of this noise. Yes, I, I was the out when they were making all this noise.
0: Off in the distance, Sandy remembers hearing a siren.
3: Cops had pulled somebody over for speeding or something like that, and a siren went off. And just just hearing that, of course you think they're after you. You think yeah. they're coming right then and there.
1: And you turn into Fred Flintstone you
3: legs. Do. I mean, you're doing it. Yeah, <laughs> you feel like
0: all rubbery. I'm like, wow. And so they took their Fred Flintstone legs... Right back across the river. I remember getting
1: home and laying in bed. And by then, I worked for, for the environmental division in King County. And I remember thinking, I'm married, I have a mortgage, I carry a badge. There's no, demi- no way I can deny any of this. And I, I almost started shaking. I had to get up and get a glass of scotch. I couldn't sleep. I was just like, this is, this is no longer a fun thing a teenager does with Uncle Jim. This is what adults do to fight corruption.
0: The fox was winding down. But as he did, others were picking up the baton of radical environmental activism. And some of them had very different ideas about how to get their message across. We'll hear about that after a break. One night in October of 1998, eight fires erupted all across the ridges and peaks of Vail Mountain Resort in Colorado. The fires went up one after another. Snack bars, chairlifts, and the largest building, the one that the news helicopters would circle around for hours as it went from small blaze to structure fire and to eventually a smoldering pile of cinders, the Two Elks Lodge. Immediately, investigators suspected arson and found a trail of footprints from someone who ran down the mountain, following the path where each fire was set. They found evidence that the blazes were started using five-gallon buckets full of diesel and gasoline. A few days after the fire, they learned they were right. An anonymized email sent to a local radio station, said the fire had been set by a group called the Earth Liberation Front. Their protest? The ski area was trying to expand into an area they claimed was lynx habitat. But after that, the trail went cold. For years, no arrests were made. By some accounts, the Fox might have been the first environmentalist who was willing to go outside the law to make his point, but he certainly wasn't the last. Not long after came Greenpeace, filming their confrontations with whaling ships and nuclear weapons testers. And then there was Edward Abbey's novel The Monkey Wrench Gang, in which a team of misfit eco-saboteurs traveled around the West destroying billboards, disabling bulldozers, and knocking down bridges. The book inspired groups like Earth First, which is always written with an exclamation point, by the way. To start doing things like hammering clandestine metal spikes into trees that would damage loggers' chainsaws if they tried to cut them down. And if you follow this lineage all the way to the end, or at least what so far has effectively been the end, you find the Earth Liberation Front. This group had a lot in common with terrorist organizations. They operated in cells, which were organized individually, not directed from some top-down central office. They didn't know who the members of the other cells even were. The most active groups were in the Pacific Northwest and targeted companies they believed were doing environmental harm.
5: They would attack those companies using arson.
0: These companies included meat packers, timber companies, SUV dealerships, biotech research labs,
5: So they would build incendiary devices that would um, burn down their buildings.
0: The ELF made sure these buildings were unoccupied, so no one was ever injured, but they caused massive property damage.:
5: I think they felt like forests of trees that had 500year- old, thousand-year-old trees were getting cut down, and that's irreplaceable to them. They saw this as if somebody were uh, knocking down Notre Dame, just destroying something that's completely irreplaceable and sacred.
0: This is Marshall Curry, by the way.
5: And I'm the director of the Oscar-nominated documentary If a Tree Falls, a story of the Earth Liberation Front.
0: The Earth Liberation Front did succeed in one way. They got headlines. Those headlines, though might not have been the ones they were hoping for.
2: The FBI is investigating the suspicious fires as an act of domestic environmental terrorism.
0: The FBI considers them the country's biggest domestic terrorist threat. They burn buildings, they burn SUVs, and now some of them want to go even further. Group, a former member of the terror cell shares secrets of the plots they carried out until the FBI caught up with them. Here's Drew Griffin with the Special Investigations Unit. While the Fox was seen as a rogue, a vigilante. The ELF were branded as eco-terrorists. Virtually every story about them led with this term.
5: My understanding is that the term ecoterrorism was coined by Ron Arnold, who was kind of a spokesman for the extraction industries and was famously quoted as saying he wanted to destroy the environmental movement. And it's an incredibly clever term. It sticks in your ear, it rolls off your tongue, just like the best marketing campaigns.
0: The term may also have stuck because visually that's what their actions looked like. Images of multi-million dollar ski lodges in Vail being turned into smoldering holes in the ground or of Hummers exploding as the fires reached the gas tanks. Nobody was ever killed, and the elf planned it that way, but it didn't change how the group was perceived.
5: How effective that was is another question. I spoke to people in Vale uh, who were part of the protest movement against um, the expansion of the uh, the ski resort in Vale, and they told me that they had really built a great coalition there of you know old lady bird watchers and yuppies who wanted to ride their mountain bikes and you know crunchy old hippies and scientist environmentalists, and that when the fire happened there. Suddenly, everybody said, oh, geez, I don't want anything to do with these crazies. And the the coalition completely splintered. The ski resort completely won the PR battle. And it completely undercut their support with the mainstream.
0: The ELF did not leave money orders on the windowsill for any damage they might have caused. They did not create a circle of trust in their community. In fact, they barely even trusted each other. They didn't make plans as a large group for fear that if one was caught, they'd be forced to rat out their co-conspirators. As it turned out, this last part anyway, was a reasonable idea because there's another big difference between the time of the Fox and now.
5: I think it was after 9-11 that the serious funding and, uh, and the serious resources started um, getting freed up to attack kind of anything that was called terrorism.
0: Compared to the 1960s, when protesters of all kinds were taking to the streets and demanding changes of all sorts, the ELF was operating in the post-9-11 era, the time of the Patriot Act and the War on Terror. The FBI launched Operation Backfire, where they managed to convince one member of the ELF to turn on his co-conspirators and then travel the country wearing a wire, getting them to incriminate themselves on tape.
5: All at once, they they launched a a raid where they rounded up um, folks all over the country in the same day.
0: 13 men and women were arrested. Many turned state's witness in exchange for avoiding jail time. A few did not, including Daniel McGowan, who was eventually convicted on a charge that included a terrorism enhancement and sentenced to seven years of prison. Here he is in a clip from Marshall's documentary. People need to question, like, this buzzword, and how it's being used and how it's like just become the new communist has become the new, you know, it's like the boogeyman. It's a boogeyman word. It's like whoever re- I really disagree with
2: is a terrorist. Some people have the problem with, you know, calling this terrorism. But when you're basically making the threat where people go home at night wondering if they're going to be a target,
0: um, that's what terrorism is. So I guess the, the big question that I'm kind of driving at here is, is, you know, was this terrorism i mean do you think that
5: do you think that this was terrorism um you know that's one of the big questions of of my film and uh if i thought that there was a super simple answer um i probably wouldn't have spent you know three years making a film about it because i i I honestly think that it is a complicated question um when i talked to um to the activists, they said, um, this is definitely not terrorism. This is like the Boston Tea Party. It's symbolic property destruction. Um, we took very you know, careful measures to make sure that nobody would get hurt. We scouted these places out. We lit these fires at night. It was property destruction intended to be that, and, and, and nobody's ever been hurt. When I talked to the arson victims, um, they definitely felt like it was terrorism. And in their minds... The essence of terrorism is, are you trying to inflict fear on somebody? And they uh, f- said, yes, that was their goal. And, 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 you know, these are businesses that people had built their lives around. And suddenly they're, they get a call in the middle of the night that their office or their factory or their, or, you know, their life's work um, has been burned up. And I have to say that if somebody lit my office on fire and discover you know, destroyed... The only files of, of movies that I had been working on um, and sent a communique, a threatening communique, that I would consider that to be terrorism.
0: Terrorism has a legal definition, but it also has an emotional one. Whenever I've told people about the Earth Liberation Front's actions, Arson, spray-painting slogans on the walls, using splashy media stories to get their message out. I watch their faces. And what I see is horror. We can imagine our homes being burnt to the ground and our way of life being vilified. And that is terrifying. But is it terrorism? Marshall Curry isn't sure. He says, If terrorism is violence meant to inspire fear, what about mobsters extorting money? What about domestic violence? He says the sister of one of the convicted ELF arsonists, who is not at all sympathetic to her brother's cause, told him something he'll never forget.
5: She said, you know, we grew up in in Rockaway, uh, in New York. And she said there's tons of cops and fire firefighters that live where we live. And she said after 9-11, our neighborhood lost more dads uh, in the 9-11 attacks than any other part of New York or New Jersey. And she said... You know, I know what terrorism feels like. And to use the same word to describe what Al-Qaeda did to those families, uh, to describe what my brother did, who my brother won't even eat meat. Like, he won't even wear leather because he doesn't want to hurt animals. And the idea he certainly doesn't want to hurt people and and takes great care not to hurt people. And to use the same word to describe the fires that he lit is just a, a... the twisting of, 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 of that word.
0: But a judge disagreed. Based on the law, using ignition devices to light property on fire to convey an ideological message that's terrorism. Both the Fox and the members of the ELF were engaging in illegal activity. But these two stories, they feel very different. Somewhere between the fox pouring caustic chemicals onto the carpet of the corporate offices of a major manufacturer or breaking a window to squirt smelly chemicals into a polluter's building, somewhere between that and burning down a building, a line is crossed. After this line, society says, that's not a reasonable way of making your point. And I even wonder, if the fox and them were to switch decades, what would his community have thought then? The same low-level lawbreaking that was accepted in the 60s and 70s, the era of anti-Vietnam protests and the civil rights movement, might be seen very differently in the early 2000s, right after 9-11. Maybe in post-9-11 America, his acts of small-scale industrial sabotage and vandalism would have been seen as unpatriotic. Toward the end of his life, the Fox had a conversation with a longtime friend and co-conspirator, asking if they had done the right thing.
4: And they talked about it, and they felt very strongly that they that they had done the right thing. But even your, your original question, do we think he did anything wrong? We all know things that we were involved in were not entirely legal. But none of us night. were brought in until we reached the point where we could where we could understand a gray area decision. And so we did know some of it was wrong, but we also knew that what these companies were doing, our decision was, they are more wrong than we are. All we want is for them to pay attention Mm -hmm. and stop.
0: Jim Phillips died in 2001 at age 70. He had diabetes. It was only after his death that it became public that he was the fox, Big newspapers all around the country, including the Chicago Tribune, but also the New York Times and the L.A. Times, ran an obituary laying out his whole story. And far from repudiating him, the community has thanked him. They put a plaque with his symbol in a local Riverside park. There's a question that we've been kind of dancing around here. While dumping waste into a river has an immediate visible effect, the impacts of something like global warming are slow and harder to see. But for the first time, those impacts, while exactly what some of them will be is still somewhat uncertain, are now on our doorstep. And given the events of recent weeks, references to climate change getting scrubbed from the EPA's website, government employees creating alternate Twitter handles to broadcast facts about climate change, and the new administration stepping aside to clear the way for the Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipelines, it seems fairly clear that the U.S. government isn't about to do anything about global warming. So what will environmentalists do about this? As the possibility for action through official channels begins to close, we might be on the verge of seeing a whole new wave of copycats, or copy foxes, as it were. How society receives them? I guess we'll find out. Outside In is produced by me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Logan Shannon, with help from Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Molly Donahue. Many thanks this week to Rob Winder from the Aurora Public Library in Illinois, and to Steve Lord with The Beacon News for helping to fill in the gaps in the story of the fox. Also, thanks to Marshall Curry for letting us borrow audio from his documentary. If you'd like to see it, we've got a link at our website, outsideinradio.org. Also over at the site, we have some historical newspaper clips from way back when the Fox was first getting headlines. You should take a look. Some of them were pretty funny. And if you were to follow us on social media at Outside In Radio, you'd see that we post lots of other fun stuff, too. Music this week was from Jason Leonard, Blue Dot Sessions, Poddington Bear, El Palteado, and Jazzar. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.